Well, the Israelites have been wonderfully, miraculously delivered from their enemies by God. The Egyptians who once drowned the Hebrew babies were themselves drowned by God as the Red Sea flooded back over them. The Egyptian gods that once seemed so powerful, so daunting, have been exposed as entirely bankrupt, impotent. The yoke of slavery has been thrown off. The Israelites are free indeed. And they celebrate their victory on the further shore of the Red Sea with a song of praise and with dancing. They had seen the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, and they feared the Lord. And the scripture says, they put their trust in him and in his servant Moses for three days. Three. Count them. One, two, three whole days of satisfaction and bliss and contentment with God and circumstances. And then the complaining began. Our text today includes uh, three different accounts of what are known as the murmuring passages. Okay? These are the accounts of Israel at Merah, Exodus 15, 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? In the wilderness, Exodus 16, 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And at Massa, Exodus 17, 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So I think you can probably guess what the message is going to deal with this morning. It's the issue of grumbling. Author Tim Chester has written in his commentary on Exodus, he says, people who moan really annoy me. People who go on and on about their petty problems or the failings of the government or the state of the roads or the behavior of young people or old people, don't they realize how privileged they are? It really annoys me. The worst are those people who moan about people who moan. He says, let me make my irony explicit. As I grumble about grumblers, I turn out to be the biggest grumbler of all. But of course, that's what we often do. We think of grumbling as something other people do. What we do is make justified complaints or offer constructive criticism. But we don't grumble. We make ourselves the exception. But the reality is that most of us grumble, and some of us grumble most of the time. You a grumbler this morning? You a complainer? Well, one doesn't have to go too far to encounter complaining. What Megan Hill, a writer Megan Hill, terms the universal currency of the world. You'll find it in angry customers at local stores, dissatisfied patrons at restaurants, upset taxpayers at city halls. You'll find it every winter in the cold and every summer in the heat. You will find it in the slow-moving line at the bank that you always seem to choose. You will find it every baseball season if you cheer for the Red Sox. <laughs> you will find it before, during, and after every election. You will find it even in your own house. If the dishes don't get done, or the laundry starts to pile up, or there's nothing to eat here. 
You'll even find it in the church and among the people of God. Writing for Christianity Today in an article titled Rabble Roused, pastor, author, seminary president M. Craig Barnes said his most vivid memory of ministry is deja vu. He wrote, I've had the exact same conversations in three different churches. The youth group eating pizza in the parlor. No one fills the church van with gas. The struggle to find Sunday school teachers. And the question about special offerings hurting the general budget. And when Barnes says that he's had these three conversations, what he's saying is that he has listened to these same three complaints in these churches. These are, these are not weighty things. These are not spiritual issues, right? These are not the things that a pastor longs to delve into with his sheep. These are complaints. These are grumbles. These are people raising objections, protesting because their needs are not being met. They're not getting what they want. Things aren't being done the way they think they should be. These are the spawn of the rabble whose tolerance for discomfort is low and whose capacity for complaining is high, what Barnes calls an unfortunate combination. Grumbling is everywhere, right? Even in the church. And so while our focus this morning may be on events that happened 3,400 years ago, my hope is that we will find some application for us today. You know, every once in a while you come across a passage of Scripture and you go, oh, yeah, I know that. And you read it through and you go, yeah, that's nice. Those Israelites kind of numb, but it's okay. We're getting through the book of Exodus. And then sometimes you get to a passage of Scripture like this when you have the liberty like I do to sit with it for a long time. It becomes very convicting. It would be very easy to just read through this passage. And again, as Chester suggests, make it somebody else's issue. Somebody else. It's not me. I don't do that. But I want to challenge you this morning as we dig into this text. Let the Spirit minister to you and hear what he has to say to you about the subject of grumbling and complaining. Because it is a behavior that is toxic, infectious, it is a faithless sin, it is utterly unbefitting. Father, we don't want to fly over your words and miss them. Check the box and say that we've been here, we've done it, we listened, and nothing changes. But where you have something to say to us, help us hear. We pray in Jesus' name. So we're at Mara this morning, fresh off victory, just three days removed from singing, The Lord is my strength. And my song, he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. Right after that, exaltation has turned into accusation. Long journey with no water, which is without question a serious issue, has left the people cranky. They're thirsty. Finally do find water. It's almost like adding insult to injury. When they find the water, it is undrinkable. Bitter. The water is bitter, and so the people become bitter. They become bitter by doing something that you and I might be inclined to do, which also will make us bitter, and that is focusing in on what they do not have. They are not focused on what they do have. They are not focused on God. 
God who has just proved to them how powerful he is, how able he is to save. Instead, they ruminate over their lack. Have you ever do that? Ruminate over their lack, and then they settle their crosshairs on their leader, Moses. They grumble against him. And so in response to this uprising of sorts, Moses cries out to the Lord, who chooses, because he is gracious, to bless them with yet another miracle. God shows Moses a piece of wood and tells him to throw it into the spring, and in obedience he does that, and then the water becomes sweet. The water becomes fit to drink. The moral of the story for the Israelites is this, that if they will trust God, if they will heed his instructions and be careful to obey him, he will not afflict them as he did the Egyptians. Rather, he would be the God who heals them. And he is the God who is capable of healing them from their bitterness, just the same way he healed that bitter water and made it fit drink. But the Israelites at Marah did not pick up much of what God was laying down. They took a little convalescence in a place called Elam, where there was plenty of water and even some shade. And then they broke camp and headed to the wilderness of sin. This time, the problem is not thirst. The problem is hunger. They have a lack of food. And they grumble again, the whole congregation, against Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread for the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly of hunger. That's a particularly offensive complaint. Because the people are actually saying that they were better off in Egypt. That they had it better in Egypt. They're basically saying that they wish they'd never left. Now, do you remember why God didn't leave the Israelites on the direct route to the promised land? He knew. And he said that if they faced war, they would lose heart, and they would turn back, and they would want to go back to Egypt. Well, here they are. They're not facing war. They're just hungry. And that is enough to have them longingly looking over their shoulders to the way things used to be and romanticizing that condition as if it were so wonderful, all of a sudden, the tyranny and the ruthless treatment that they received for generations in Egypt is viewed by them as a banquet. And in their minds, the lack that they suffer in the wilderness is worse than the slavery they endure. How should God respond? So they're turning on him. They're quarreling against God. Moses is clear about that. I don't know. Who are we? Why do you grumble against us? You're grumbling against God. How would how should God respond to that? How would you respond if you have given so much of yourself to help someone to 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 climb out of a hopeless pit? only to have them tell you that they want to go back to it. It's pretty disappointment. Disappointing, don't you think? Maybe a little bit miffed, a little bit angry, maybe even indignant. But God is good. So much better than us, beloved. So much better than us. response to their complaints of hunger that we Give them what they need. More than what they need. 
Not because they deserve it. Because he is good. And that's how he chose to treat his people. He makes a quail come in every evening. These have to be dumb quail. Because they're easily caught. I think they were spruce partridge, personally. You know? Maine, you know what those things are all about. They're practically dangerous. They're just like wilderness chickens. He makes a quail to come in. And then he, then he rains down bread from heaven. This, this is fascinating. A, a thin, flaky thing that emerges when the dew goes. The people don't even know what it is, and that's what they say. What is it? Which sounds like the Hebrew, right? The, it's manna, Hebrew for what is it? They don't have any idea, but God says it's the bread. He tells them they can gather as much as they need. And that's exactly what they do. And you know what? With manna and quail, God set the menu for the Israelites for the next 40 years. And for the time being, at least, he solved their problem of hunger. Now, chapter 17 begins with yet another change of setting. The Israelites are moving in stages, the scripture says. They camp at a place called Rephidim, and they did this at the command of the Lord. But there was no water there for them to drink. So we note once again, God has led them to a place of need. God has led them to a place of helplessness. God has led them to this place. We don't like these places. We don't like places of neediness. We don't like places of helplessness. We don't like places of vulnerability. We don't like places of unknown. But sometimes God leads us to these places Divinely, God appoints these places in our lives. Sometimes he does that, and always they are an opportunity for us to seek him for his help. And that is the point which now for the third time or fourth, if you count the panic at the Red Sea, is being missed. The Israelites are not walking by faith. They're walking by sight. They're walking by what is right in front of them, or what they want to try to control, by what they feel they ought to be able to manipulate. And when they can't do any of that stuff, they just get mad because they're not walking by faith. Their hope is in flesh and blood. Their concern is with flesh and blood. And their anger ultimately ends up being directed at flesh and blood. And for the second time, they have no water. They quickly turn on Moses and Aaron again. Now, mind the progression here, if you would, and note the corrosive nature of complaining, okay? At first, it says the people complain there at Mara. You get a sense there that there's this kind of a low-grade dissatisfaction with what's happening, and it's being spread around. Next crisis, you see the whole congregation grumbled, okay? So they've been working on the phone tree, and they've got it so... Now they can effectively complain to one another, and the whole congregation has a heightened sense of displeasure. There's a more widespread, cohesive displeasure about the way things are being handled. And then, in the throes of the third major disappointment they would face in a short period of time, this grumbling habit and complaining habit and gossiping habit turns into an uprising, turns into a rebellion. The people aren't just dissatisfied. Now they're quarreling with Moses. Now they're wrangling. 
the root word there is to toss. It's like wrestling with God's appointed leader. They contend with him. They're at odds with him. He, Moses, has become their problem. He has become their adversary. Note how the enemy loves division. And that is how to take down a group called divide and conquer. And it's a common strategy. That's why in Ephesians we are commanded to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Also, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond. This is why Paul told the Christians in Galatia, if you bite and devour one another, watch out, be careful, or you might be consumed yourself. Here at Massa and the Israelites are figuratively taking chunks out of Moses' pie. They quarrel with him. They make demands of him. You give us something to drink. You are the one who got us into this mess. You have to get us out. Grumbled against Moses and then why'd you bring us up here? Us and our children and our livestock just so we can die of birth. So that's three separate incidents, okay? Three separate incidents where Israel faces difficulty and they respond to the difficulty with grumbling. Now why do they do that? Or why might we be inclined to do that when the hard things come to us? And they will. The short answer is, is, and the scriptural answer is, that the people are inclined to grumble when they forget God. Psalm 106, verses 9 to 14 says, He, God, rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert, so he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his word. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. You might be wondering, I, I, I do. How could the Israelites forget such a wonderful deliverance from Egypt and the mighty works of God that saved them from the Egyptians. How could they forget that? And the answer, at least one possible answer, I think, is crisis. Not, it's not an excuse. It's just an answer. Crises can at times fill us with spiritual amnesia. We lose our heads in the depth of the crime. When I was a kid, it was a big deal that a bunch of classmates were taking karate. You can tell that I didn't. <laughs> so they're showing off their skills, as kids only can do, right? Show and tell when you're in sixth, seventh, or eighth grade is to beat people into lockers. But anyway, they're showing off their karate skills. And I was talking with my dad about that, and he said, well, if you ever have to fight one of those kids, punch him right in the nose, and he'll forget most everything he's learned. I'm not advocating child violence, so anybody get freaked out. But what I want to say is that I think the Israelites at Merah feel like they have been punched in. Very 
quickly things have gone bad for them, real bad. They are reeling not because their beds aren't fluffy enough and not because they only have 12 channels on the TV. They don't have any water to drink. That is a serious thing. Without water, you die. They panic. And in their panic, they, they act badly because they forget God. They forget that the God who promised to deliver them from slavery also promised to bring them into a land. Exodus 6, 8 for a reference. They, they have forgotten that. That God has a, a larger story laid out for them and he's actually given some of them the end of it but they've forgotten that they're rather like jesus disciples you remember this story it's captured in matthew's gospel i think it's captured actually in a couple of different places but jesus is with his disciples on the seashore he says let us go over to the other side and they get in the boat and he's in the boat with them and he's asleep and a big storm comes up and they and they they get they panic and they wake him and they say something to the effect of, Lord, don't you care? We're going to die. We're perishing. Don't you care? They forgot what Jesus said to them at the beginning of that journey. Let us go to the other side. I will get you there. These are the promises of God that when we get ourselves in awful binds, we tend to lose sight of. The one who began a good work in us We'll finish that work. We'll complete that work. It doesn't matter how desperate it looks right now. It doesn't matter how bad it seems to you right now. This is the nature of God. To finish, unlike us, to finish what he starts. Who he is, it's what he does. Easy to forget that stuff, isn't it? Because sometimes right out of the blue, life punches us in the nose. We forget those promises. Sometimes storms arise without warning with such ferocity. For a bit, we, for a bit, we just lose sight of God's goodness. And we forget then to take him into account in our circumstances, in our responses, in our reactions. We forget to lift our eyes to him who is the source of our help. We forget to look for the lessons that he has taught us through past struggles, through past disappointments, through other seasons of lack, where we didn't have what we thought we needed, but God came through. And in our panic and in our forgetfulness, where God doesn't seem present, or God doesn't seem particularly good, we take matters into our own hands, craft our own solution. And in the meantime, we murmur, Grumble, complain. But that's not God's desire for his people. He didn't save the Israelites to kill them in the wilderness. He saved them that they might bring him glory. He didn't save us for any other reason than that as well. Save for his glory. How much glory can we bring to God if on a regular daily basis or complaining, or grumbling. How does that shine a light on the goodness of God, the sufficiency of Christ, or anything like that? It is not God's desire for his people 
It's not God's desire for any who call upon him as Lord to grumble. The Bible says in Philippians 2, verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. I mean, life would be easier if we could just edit some of the verses we don't like in the Bible. Some people do. That's not what it says, right, beloved? Do everything without grumbling, or complaining, or arguing, without murmuring and disputing. The King James says it, yes, be without grumbling or questioning. This is language that comes right out of Israel's wilderness journey, okay? Paul goes on to write that believers should be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And when he says that in Philippians 2.15, he's making reference to words of Moses. Moses is nearing his death. He's speaking against the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. He said, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Straight out of Deuteronomy to Philippians. The Israelites had dealt corruptly with God by not believing in him, by grumbling, by complaining, by forgetting God and not waiting for his counsel. And what is Paul saying here? He said, don't be like that. Not for you. Not how you're supposed to be. Now, the context of this instruction in Philippians 2 and the reason that we can actually follow it is Jesus. Philippians 2 is a pretty famous chapter in the Bible, a wonderful hymn. You're very familiar with it, I know. But prior to these words in verse 14, verse 15, Paul has commanded us to have in ourselves the attitude that was also in Christ Jesus. That is an attitude of humility, an attitude of, of willing submission to God. That is what Jesus had. And that is what we can have by Christ in us, if we choose it. Jesus was completely humble and submissive to the will of God up until including his death on the cross. If anyone had a right to grumble about the way he was treated. If anyone had a legit complaint about injustice and per perpetrated on him, it was Jesus. You know, he came to this world to sleep under the stars he created. He came to become a servant. And he was a servant. He came to his own, and John tells us his own would not receive him. He endured the scorn of men. He endured the lies and the abuses of power that brought him before the government that he ordained. A government which professed to have authority over his life and death when he held it in his hands. If anyone had a right to complain, it was Jesus. But what does the prophet Isaiah say about him? Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not. In humility, and humility, by the way, is not thinking bad about oneself. That's what some people think it is. Humility is actually not thinking of oneself at all. In humility, Christ is silent. And so Paul moves us toward this kind of humility 
in the Christian life in Philippians chapter 2 as an essential ingredient to our Christian witness. And he encourages us to keep in mind that Jesus knew full well what allowed Jesus actually to endure this difficulty without complaint, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 13. Remember, you want to live without complaint, you've got to remember that God, who loves you, is at work in every corner, every jot and tittle of your life. Remember that it is God who is at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember that we are secure in his love. Nothing can separate us. Remember that he doesn't slumber and he doesn't sleep and he doesn't take a break and he never, ever takes his eyes off you. Remember these things. God is always up to something. And God is always the Lord of our soul. The mistake that we might make is the mistake that Israel and that is failing to trust him. Failing to lift our eyes to him for help. Failing to see his kind purposes even when something we feel we need is missing in our lives. My friends, if we focus on what's not there, we will lose appreciation for what has been and what is? That's the mighty hand. Let's stand and sing our concluding hymn this morning. Song, I hope also a prayer and a reminder.